Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today as we worship and fellowship together. To find out more about Waterbrook, go to www.waterbrook.church. Well, let me ask you to take your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. And uh, we're going to kind of do an overview and, and focus on this section of Scripture starting in verse 7. Um, but uh, I'll probably pick up some of it again next uh, Sunday as we have Phyllis with us and um, she'll be sharing a bit of their story and testimony. Um, but Hebrews chapter 13, before we look at this, can I ask if anyone has memorized their memory verse for this week? Love to put you on the spot in a small group. <laughs> Anybody learn First Peter 3 this week? Anybody knew it before we started? Yeah, you're, that's earlier. Yeah, that's, that's a good guess. That is that chapter, right? Or chapter 2 there. That's right. For Christ also, what? Suffered once for sins, right? The righteous for the unrighteous. For what purpose? To bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, in the body, depends on your translation, and made alive... In the Spirit, or by the Spirit, again, your translation. So the memory verse for this week fits in because it's the gospel. And uh, one of the, the great realities that we live out of and that we communicate is the gospel, that Christ has suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. That's the foundation of the gospel. So that as we live and we breathe and we um, follow and trust Christ in an uncertain world, our certainty is in Jesus, his finished work. It's not what we're trying to finish. His accomplished task on, uh, on our behalf once for all. And so that's the great hope of the gospel. And that will come out repeatedly in our study this morning. But I shared with you earlier, this is Reformation Sunday, in, in the litur- which we're not typically a liturgical church, but in a liturgical calendar every uh, last Sunday in October. October 31st is when um, they, the, the Reformation is celebrated because in 1517, Martin Luther um, supposedly nailed his 95 thesis to... Uh, the church door at Wittenberg. Uh, he certainly wrote a letter at that point in time, we do know that, laying out his concerns with regard to what was happening in the church at that time, particularly and noticeably disturbed by the requirement of the people to pay indulgences to get their salvation, to get out of purgatory early. Uh, that wasn't the only thing he was writing about, but that was his purpose in terms of reforming the church. And so he was not the first in the Reformation. There was a historical moment where it was rather chaotic. And I would say to you, this is comforting to come to this text and to think about the days in which we live and then put it in, first of all, biblical perspective and then historical perspective, because we live at a time where the political environment and the global environment is incredibly vulnerable to big swings right now. Don't you just feel and see the... Um, how um, palpable the turmoil in the world is right now. And uh, sometimes we think, you know, this is the end of the world. I just want to tell you it may be. But the other thing was that we'll see with some of the reformers that we talk about today that they thought at times that it was 
the end of the world based on the swings that they were going through. One king would reign or one emperor in Europe, one pope or two popes during the time of the Reformation would rule and then they would, one die or one would take over or the swing would go and you would be in favor and then you'd be out of favor. You would be able to preach at a city and the next week you would be imprisoned for periods of time. So for Christians, it was a remarkable, tumultuous time. And the truth of the gospel is that when you look at the lives of the redeemers or the reformers, the reformers were almost all um, broken men who had a heavy hand of the Holy Spirit upon their lives to be faithful to God. And they had to work out the word of God and the gospel of God as God was calling them to stand at times which would require some of them to die. Um, they would be burnt at the stake. They would be strangled and then burnt. And these men and, and leaders at that point in time did not know from one moment to another which way the political environment would switch. But they did know God's hand was on them. And they were in the Word of God wrestling with the Word of God. And as they were going through... And so I just want to say this to you and I that... When we look at the political environment in the world, I think we could be swinging in a time where it is remarkably difficult to be open about your faith and faithful to the faith once delivered to the, the church. I think we may go into that swing of hostility and alienation where the, the cultural and the, um, the political environment may. But you know what? God can just swing it the other way, can he? You probably lived long enough. And then let's put it in a little microcosm. Doesn't that happen in our lives? Doesn't our lives just go like that, you know, from one Sunday to another? You know, one Sunday you come in and you're on top of the world. The next week the bottom's falling out. And you just think, man, in all of the personal turmoil and the political turmoil of, of, of world history, in my, in my life and everything gone, life looks chaotic, but we need to be reminded in the gospel and in the word of God that there is a core foundation. And here's what I want to suggest to you today that the writer is saying. There are some things that are worth dying over. And we live in a culture where there's not much worth dying over. But one of the things that is worth dying over is the gospel. And understanding the what makes up the gospel and, and understanding why these people were willing to put their life on the line in the book of Hebrews, why they were willing to do it at the, uh, at the Reformation, and why we need to be conscious of what we believe now because there can be this slow eroding of our convictions such that there's nothing worth believing in anymore. And uh, sometimes the, the good side of opposition and hostility is it helps you make up your mind whether or not you're in or you're not in. Whether or not you believe what you actually say you believe. And uh, so when we come to this text of Scripture, I believe Hebrews 13, verse 7, I'll read it to you, but I want you to, it, what the writer is telling these believers, because they are in, they're in the pendulum swing of the Roman Empire. And it does swing. And, and uh, there are people who have fled from Jerusalem because of the persecution in Jerusalem, and they've been scattered as the diaspora out into the Mediterranean region. Now there's people from the Roman Empire who are being scattered out from Rome because of Nero's persecution. And that was the life of the early church. But God built his church in the middle of that chaos. And God brought up people, and I want to reiterate this, God raises up weak people to do great things. 
And so no matter what's going on in the culture, you and I have to realize that under the church is the truth of the word of God and the gospel and who Christ is and how God works. And he will bring us to a deep sense of our need of the gospel so we will stand firm against the winds that switch and blow in different directions against us. And so Hebrews 13, 7, look at that verse where we start because what he says to them is for them to remember their leaders. Now, um, thank you for remembering Marianne and I on Pastor Appreciation uh, Month. I didn't, you know, I never remember these things till somebody comes up and Hillary, thank you for. She sent me a card in the mail this last week and from their family and said, so, "Oh, I realize that's what's going <laughs> going on." But you know what? I um, one of the things that we do is we come back and we are called to appreciate not just the content. He's not just saying the contemporary leaders. That's not what it means here that are presently pastoring you. He's talking about the people that brought the gospel to you and paid a price for it. So I want you to hear the text. He's he's talking about the leaders who have sacrificed so that the gospel would go out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And sometimes we forget how it is that we worship freely in Victoria, Minnesota in the year 2019. We worship freely because others could not. We live on the history of other people who went to jail, paid the price because they were concerned that people like us would get the word of God, get the gospel of God clearly. And so there is times when we need to stop and say, do we realize that the freedom we have today here is not enjoyed by most Christians around the globe now? And that there is a call of the gospel to go to places in the world now where there isn't freedom. And God is raising up sturdy people in the gospel, in those places, to stand firm and pay the price so that people could be rescued from sin and brokenness and oppression. Um, so, so that's one of the things. we just got to think about that's what God is doing now, and that's what God's done for all of us. And it may not be here for long. We assume we have it. And they had swings. Just, if you lived in England... During the 1300s, 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, you were like, every time the queen changed, every time the pope changed, every time the king changed, there was a swing in the, in the political power. And you could have been helping, working on part of the British um, government, and on the next moment, you could be hanging in the gallows. It's like Henry VIII's wives. I mean, just imagine what it was like. That was the environment in which the church was formulating the gospel. So let me read this text. Let me, let me stop because we're, we're, we're just a little church so I can do this. Anybody know the five principles of the Reformation, the five key doctrines that they died over? Because we're going to walk through. Give me the first one. So, oh. Okay, sola fide, sola scriptura. Yep, faith alone, that's sola fide. So it's faith alone, scripture alone, Christ alone. We sing Christ alone, right? A solus Christus, sola, sola Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. One more, sola gratia, right? By grace alone, through faith alone, grace alone. And so all, I want you to listen to this text. Look for Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, to the glory of God. That's what the whole last section is. It's to, to the praise of God. 
And um, what was the first one? Sola Scriptura. It's going to be right in the first verse. So listen to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders. Which leaders? Those who did what? Spoke the word of God to you. There's your Sola Scriptura. That's who you're to remember. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their what? Works? Their faith. Verse 8. Solus Christus. Christ alone. Jesus Christ is what? The same. Yesterday, today, and forever. You see how fun it is to be a pastor? Because you're thinking, you're not thinking first it's Reformation. I, you've already got Christ, uh, the word of God alone. You already have faith alone, and you have a Christ alone, the first three verses on Reformation Sunday. And all of you know, I never plan my, I don't even know Saturday how I'm going to say my sermon. They, they, these guys, they, they edit PowerPoint Sunday morning. And they don't curse me. I don't know, like not out loud. They just edit it because I'm, I'm working it over and over and over all the way through. So we got the, then it says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teaching, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by Grace alone, not religion. We got the four solas in the first few verses. This, maybe this isn't exciting for you, but as a pastor, I'm going, wow, this is crazy, God. That you would, on Reformation Sunday, give us all of those. And then the rest will be to the glory of God. We have an altar from which uh, those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burnt outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify his people through his own blood. And so the picture there we have is that when the, the priests gave the sacrifice in the temple, they took the sacrifice after it was offered, and they, they, they took the bodies and they burnt them in the outside of the camp. And so Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, went outside the camp, died outside Jerusalem on Golgotha. Right? The, the place of skulls. Jesus died. And what he's saying is, if that's what sacrifices do, if sacrifices go out into the place of rejection and shame, then aren't we to do that? Do you understand what he's saying here? Jesus suffered and sacrificed outside. We are going to be outsiders. We've got to be willing to take the shame of being seen as unclean. And outsiders. Therefore, verse 13, let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So this is a call. You see it in the Reformation. You see it all the time. That if you're going to be a follower of Christ in the culture that shifts, we are going to be, have to be willing to courageously bear the shame of the gospel. To be outsiders to the community. To be rejected. For we ha here have no lasting city, we seek the city that's to come. Through him, let us continually offer what? A sacrifice of praise to God. Who are we doing it for? God. Soli Deo Gloria. To the glory of God alone. Why would you take on shame? Because he's worthy. Because he's given his son. Because he took on shame. Isn't he worthy? That's what's being said, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Acknowledge that you're a Christian. Acknowledge that he is your Savior. 
Be unashamed to identify with Jesus Christ, regardless of what the culture says, regardless of the shame, regardless of nobody in your family, nobody in your workplace, regardless if there's not another kid at school that acknowledges Jesus. We, for the glory of his name, will take the shame of saying, I belong to him. Will we not? That's what the text is. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We are living to please God. What he's saying here is that for them, that's what chapter 13 has been doing, there is a fear to identify with Christians. When they identified with Christians before, they lost their possessions. They went to prison. They suffered persecution. They got a little gun shy now. If I go open, if people know I'm a Christian, I don't know what's going to happen to me. That was what the, the, the conti- continual atmosphere of the Protestant Reformation was like. That's what the continual atmosphere of the church is always like. My dear friends, if you follow Christ, you follow him outside public approval. Outside into reproach. And we, because he's worthy, are willing to offer up lips that acknowledge Jesus. So here's the simple question I would ask you today. Are you willing to acknowledge publicly that you believe in Jesus, that you trust in him alone, regardless of what the culture says, regardless of what it demands. Will you remain faithful to him? So here's what the call of discipleship is a call to courage. It's a call to be faithful and unashamed in your commitment to the cause of Christ, knowing that the kingdom has advanced not due to popularity and acceptance, but in spite of opposition and ridicule. This is a great message of the gospel. Where's Jesus right now? Seated at the right hand. How much authority does he have? All authority in heaven on earth. My dear friends, he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So whether it's popular or not, Let's profess Jesus clearly, openly, lovingly, humbly, graciously, unashamedly. Christians must remember those who suffered that they might have the gospel so that they might remember what's worth sacrificing for. Do you understand this? This is what he's saying. Remember your leaders who who blazed the trail for you. You wouldn't have the gospel if they chickened out if they shut their lips, if they denied Jesus. And that's the beauty of being at the funeral yesterday and, and getting the background to Bruce's family and to know that uh, for years and years, beyond his parents, before his parents, the gospel, the word of God was being poured into that family. And Bruce got up and preached the gospel. And I said, man, and I said um, to his boys afterwards, now you guys got to preach. <laughs> Right? Because that's what God does. He raises up. He pours in. Not so that we can be timid and afraid. My dear friends, what the world says doesn't matter. He will build his church, and he often builds it against every expectation of the church. So let me walk through this text and show you what we're to remember about those who are responsible. What is it? It's not making heroes out of them. It's making clear the gospel message. What did they teach? Number one, this is one of the convictions they had. You have to get the word of God into the hands of people. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you do not preach and proclaim the word of God, you will not change the world. You cannot change hearts. You, you know, hear the statement. You know, 
Um, Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. No, no, no. If you do not proclaim, articulate, verbalize the message of the gospel, you will not change the world. You can change politics. You can change education. You can have incredible swings. How many of you have been old enough? You know what? You don't have to be over 20 to see how politics swing. Right? You can see how one president will come in and erase exactly what the previous president does. You know what? It'll happen again. It'll happen again. It'll happen again. And if your hope is in those kind of things, you will not change the world. Doesn't mean you don't care. Doesn't mean you don't show mercy. Doesn't mean you don't have compassion. But we give thanks, he said in verse 7, to those who spoke God's word to you. That was foundational. So that's the soul of Scripture. So let me um, go to uh, the next. I'll give you a couple of illustrations. This is John Wycliffe. He's called the morning star of the Protestant Reformation. So he's in the 1300s. One of the things that affected uh, John Wycliffe a lot was the Black Plague. And you and I, you know, if the Black Plague went through the world now, it would stagger us even with the global population the way it is. And so the numbers are somewhere between 70 to 200 million people died in the middle 1300s in Europe, right, and beyond, but primarily in Europe. He lived at that time. And one of the things that affected John Wycliffe at this point in time was the wrestling in the culture, is God punishing us? And so what Wycliffe, as he wrestled with this, the, the, you know, so here's the difficulty. The people did not have access to the Word of God. And what happens when people don't have access to the Word of God is they become incredibly superstitious. Isn't that true? So they started to think God is punishing us. Wycliffe looked at it, and as he was wrestling with what he saw, he was at Oxford, you know, a doctor at Oxford, and as he was as he was working what was going on at the political realm in the church of his day, what he wrestled was what was going on amongst the clergy. Really wrestled with the the amount of money and power and possessions that was in the hand of the church. He wrestled with that. And his conclusion was not that God was punishing the people, but he was punishing the leaders of the church through all of this. And so he was wrestling with those kinds of things. And so as he wrestled with what was going on, one of the things that Wycliffe became aware of is that people will continually be manipulated by religious leaders who take advantage of them. They'll be continually superstitious of things unless you allow them to read the Word of God for themselves. And so Wycliffe said these things, the laity, meaning the average person, ought to understand the faith. And since the doctrines of our faith are in the Scriptures, believers should have the Scriptures in a language familiar to them. And to this end, the Holy Ghost endued them with knowledge of all tongues. And so what he saw was that people could speak in languages, and those people, whatever your language was, that's why we have you know Wycliffe Bible translators today in honor of him, because... John Wycliffe believes you should be able to read your Bible. And it shouldn't be limited to the, those who could read Latin and were super educated. If you could get the word in the hands of God, you could free the, uh, the hands of people. 
the word of God in the hands of people, you could free them from false, fearful manipulation, superstition, and ultimately condemnation because they didn't know the Savior. They trusted in other things. Of course, uh, Wycliffe eventually dies. He's seen as a heretic. They dig up his body after he's dead, several years after his body, he's condemned. They dig him up, burn him, his dead body, and throw it in the river to make it look like he is cursed by God, by the church, because he dare give. Do you, do you understand that there, most of the world historically has not had access to the Word of God? Some people because of geography, some people because of race, a lot of people because of religious alienation. I remember as a kid going to my cousin's church, and uh, they couldn't come to my church. They weren't allowed to come to an evangelical church, but I could go to their Catholic church. And when I was a kid, you'd go to Catholic church, it was still in Latin. And I would ask them what they heard. They didn't know what they heard. No, they had a fundamental rudimentary understanding of their Catholic doctrine, but they didn't ever understand what was read in the Word of God. And there's a lot, it's, it's recent history that many people did not have access to the Word of God. So one of the things that we thank God for is that we can read our Bibles and look at it and say, has Dibley got any idea what he's talking about? Right? Because you need to look at the Word of God. You need to be like the Bereans in the book of Acts. Study the Word of God, and in the Word of God you discover the central figure of the Word of God, which is Christ. Let me give you another illustration. John Huss. John Huss lived in uh, Prague, Czechoslovakia. He was at the university there, and he was influenced. He's kind of just, just after John Wycliffe, he had read a lot of Wycliffe's um, writings. And uh, one of the things they both struggled with, and, and, uh, and John Huss struggled with even more. What happened at the time of John Huss, I don't, know if I put, I don't have the date there, but it's, he was 1369 to 1415. He was the master and rector and dean at Prague University in the Czech, what we would call the Czech Republic. Um, there was multiple popes at that point in time. So there was a competition in the, in the Roman Empire with different popes and where that was going to swing, that affected everybody, where you aligned yourself with. You ever sing at, at, um, at Christmas, Good King Wenceslas once went out on the Feast of Steve? You ever sing that at Christmas? That's from the time of John Huss when this whole battle is going on. And one of the things that happened was one of the popes of that day, Alexander V, in uh, 1410 died. And he was in rivalry with Pope Gregory VII, who was also considered a pope. And at that time, in place of Alexander V, John XII, 13th, came up. And he made a decree, John XIII, this is a pope, made a decree that he would offer indulgences to raise money for the war. This was not uncommon at this point in history. The church was going to war to get power over the people. And do you know what indulgences are? They were get-out-of-purgatory-free get cards, essentially. Right? You would pay money to the church to fund the war in order to take control of the empire, and then your loved ones wouldn't have to spend as much time in purgatory. There was such manipulation. Such And so John Huss was not a fan of this. Now, one of the things he had read and he was influenced by uh, John Wycliffe was on the Word of God. He said, therefore, 
faithful Christian. He's talking to the average Christian. Seek the truth. Listen to the truth. Learn the truth. Love the truth. Tell the truth. Learn the truth. I don't know if learn the truth is that's a typo or it's actually there. That's not mine. Uh, defend the truth even to death. He believed that with all his heart and he did. And so uh, one of the things that happened to him is that the educated were in universities and and uh, and what actually he discovered was that the elite had education, but the priests, even the priests, didn't have education. So the average priest couldn't teach the Word of God to people. So guess what he made it his goal to do? To get the Word of God into the hands of the average priest in the communities so that the average priest could get the truth of solid doctrine into the hands of the average people. And he died because of it. In fact, you know, there's a description of what it was like when they tie, undressed him, tied his hands behind his back, bound his neck with a chain, took him out with wood and straw that had piled up to his neck. And uh, the, one of the counts told him to recant to save his life. And Huss responded, in the same truth of the gospel which I have written, taught, and preached, and drawing upon the savings, the sayings, and the positions of the holy doctors, I'm ready to die today. He's talking about the Word of God. I've taught the Word of God. I've shared the Word of God. Now when you burn me, I will believe the Word of God. And that's in the 1400s. Right after that, I don't know if I put, did I put, any, did I put Tyndale up here? We've gone to the next one? No. Okay, let me read you Tyn uh, uh, Tyndale. William Tyndale lived at the time of Henry VIII. You know Henry VIII, right? If you want to see swings in politics, I mean, this guy, he had numerous wives. And one of the things that Tyndale wanted to do was to put the word of God in the hands of the people. So he had opposition on one hand from the Pope, and then he ended up, because he criticized, uh, uh, Henry VIII wanted to get rid of Catherine of Aragon. And getting rid of Catherine of the Aragon, he would execute his wife so that he could marry Anne Boleyn. Tyndale had the nerve to write and say, no, 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 no. Well, that didn't make Henry VIII too happy with him, such that Tyndale ended up having to go to Europe and live in Europe. He, and my family, so my, my family history is at the t in the 1500s, same time that's going on, my family fled from England to Holland. And so he's fl fleeing at this point in time because of that. And he goes over to Europe and he begins, he's, he, he was an expert in French, Greek, Hebrew, German, I Italian, Latin, and Spanish in addition to English. He knew all of those languages. And um, he wrote these words, If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy who drives a plow. Sorry, I'll tell you, he's writing to the Pope here. He says, If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy who drives a plow to know more of the Scriptures than you do. Amen. That's not how to win friends and influence <laughs> others. He gets betrayed in 1536. He's in Antwerp, and Henry VIII sends a, a supposed friend to meet up with him, and his friend betrays them, and they arrest him and take him back to England, and he is executed. 
It is estimated that 83% of the King James Version comes from Tyndale's translation of the Math, what he called the Matthew Bible. He put the word of God. He prayed. He prayed that even on his dying, when he was being executed, he prayed, God, open up the eyes of the king. He prayed for Henry VIII. Marianne and I went to Anne Boleyn's palace, and when we went into Anne Boleyn's palace, we went to the library, and I was looking for a, a, the, one of the oldest translations of the Bible, Tyndale's Bible, and they told me I couldn't see Tyndale's Bible. It was getting fixed up, or you know, they were preserving it. And then they brought out the, 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 the book by... Um, Tyndale called um, the Christian man. I think it was called the disciple, the Christian disciple, the Christian man, something about the Christian man. But he was writing to Henry VIII, and they brought it out and said, this is the very book that he wrote for Henry VIII. And they handed it to me. Now, if you know your history, you're going, what in the world? And they just walked out and handed me this book. And you just stand here and think, this book was written by a man who was writing to the king who would execute him. But that king would be partly responsible for the prayer that he had to get the word of God at the time of the Gutenberg press to get the word of God out into the nations. And that changed the world. Isn't that marvelous? My dear friends, that's the kind of courage. That's what you're to remember. People who were so convicted that if you could get the word of God into the hands of God's people, into the clergy that didn't even have it, if you could get there, they could get to Jesus and it would change their lives. Let's go to the next one, faith alone. Verse eight, he said, or verse seven, he says, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of, uh, word of God, consider the outcome of their life and imitate what? Their faith. Their faith. So this is what he says. Look at their life and what are you to remember about their life? And what the reformers would tell you And what any godly person would tell you is if you look at them, don't look at them, but look at what they were looking at. Don't put your trust in them because they all had weaknesses, profound struggles. I mean, do you know Martin Luther's struggles? Have you ever read his struggles? He was a nut bar left to himself. That was true of Calvin when he was in France at the time of his conversion. The only hope they had not only in being delivered from their sin and the system, but also sustaining them for the future, was that they had their faith, by faith alone. And that's what they argued. Only Jesus, only God, only trust in Him. And that's the, that's the theme of the Bible. You read the Bible, the righteous shall live by faith. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works. It's faith, faith alone. That's what they believed. So I, I give you this quote from Zwingli. Zwingli was in um, Zurich, Switzerland. And, and there was an overlapping in time and history between them with Haas and then Zwingli. Luther was certainly... A, so, so Haas was uh, really influenced by Wycliffe and Luther was certainly in, influenced by Haas. In fact, when, when Haas wrote some of his stuff, he was <laughs> quoting word for word from Wycliffe when he was talking about indulgences in the, in the priesthood. He would write some of those things, and you read it, and you go, he's copying. Right? This is an, he's been deeply affected. So Zwingli's over in Zurich, and there's a whole other political sham that's going on over there between leaders and, and, and the university. And, and so he, he ends up being involved in that. But listen to what Zwingli writes about faith. He says, But do you be of good cheer, 
For our day will not lack those who will teach Christ faithfully. I just want to stop and let you believe that for today. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God will sustain the gospel ministry in a chaotic world? He will. And who will give up their lives for him willingly, even though among men their names shall not be in good repute after them? That's what this letter is saying. There are people who are talked down about in, in our time and our history, but I tell you, they were willing to take on the shame to keep the word of God, even if it cost them their own lives. So far as I'm concerned, Zwingli writes, I look, for all evil, I look for all evil from all of them. I mean both ecclesiastics and laymen. I'm not surprised, he said, when the church persecutes us. I'm not surprised when the average citizen in the average village, you know, when they arrest John Bunyan and throw him in prison. But God will work. And he says, I beseech Christ for this one thing and one thing only, that he will enable me to endure all things courageously and that he will break me as a potter's vessel or make me strong as it pleases him. And sometimes God would have somebody die and sometimes some people would live. Right? But either way, he said, whatever it is, if I'm executed or if I live, this is the one thing that the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ will prevail. So that what the writer says is look at them and don't marvel at them. Marvel at their faith. Where's his faith? I am convinced. I, who does he beseech? Christ. Who will enable him? Christ to endure all things. Let me tell you, who's going to enable you to endure all things? Christ. Where's your hope? In Christ alone. Without Christ, you will not stand in your faith, in your life. And so there's all kinds of changes that took place in Zurich. As Zwingli opposed icons and worship, he believed the Eucharist was commemorative and not transubstantial. He actually argued... See, here's the other thing I want you to realize. Most of these reformers were not looking to leave the church. They were looking to reform the church. He argued for the clergy to get married, which was just beginning to be argued again by the Pope right now. That fasting was not necessary for Lent. Do you, do you realize you could die if you said that you didn't have to fast during Lent at that point in time? He risked his life to say it's not what we're doing, it's what is done. It's not what we offer to God, it's what God offered for us in Jesus Christ. Got another one here. Here's Luther. Luther just talked that life is the life of faith. If you want to be comforted when your conscience plagues you or when you're in dire distress, then you must do nothing but what? Grasp Christ in faith and say, I believe in Jesus, God's Son, who suffered and was crucified and died for me. In his wounds and death, I see my sin in his resurrection. I see the victory over sin, death, and the devil. I see righteousness and eternal life as well. I want to see and hear nothing except him. This is true faith in Christ and the right way to believe. Don't you love that? That's what he says. When I look at the cross, I see my sin. I look at the resurrection, I see my victory. Where is my hope? In Christ alone. In Christ alone. And so that's where we go to the next one. So it's faith alone in Christ alone. Look at verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same what? 
yesterday, today, and forever. William Lane, in his commentary, makes this clarification. Verse 8 is not to be interpreted as an acclamation of Jesus' timeless ontological immutability. There's, a, there's some $3 words for you. This is not talking about Jesus' timeless ontological immutability. What he means is, this is not saying about Jesus' nature that he never changes. What it's saying is, this is the immutability of the gospel message. Jesus alone saves. There's one thing that never changes. It's Christ alone. His shed blood died on the cross. He bore our sin. He, okay, let's try the verse again. Right? Can we do the verse again? 1 Peter chapter 13. For Christ also suffered once for all. For sin. For sin. Thank you. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That's the gospel. All Christ, He suffered in our place. It is finished. So let me give you John Wycliffe. This is the morning star of the Reformation. Trust wholly in Christ. Rely altogether on His sufferings. Be aware of seeking to be justified in any other way than by His righteousness. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for salvation. There must be atonement made for sin according to the righteousness of God. The person to make this atonement must be both God and man. Who is God? Who is man? Who is both? Jesus. Christ alone. Isn't that great? That's just as it's beginning. These guys would die because there is hope, there is salvation in no other name. No other name. Martin Luther, either sin is with you, lying on your shoulders, or it's lying on Christ, the Lamb of God. Now, if it's lying on your back, you're lost, but if it's resting on Christ, you're free, and you'll be saved. Now choose what you want. The preacher yesterday at the funeral, right? And those of you who were there remember the preacher stood up, and he basically said about Bruce's mom, he's going from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he said, we are not to grieve as those who have no hope. And he says, there's a world of difference. You need perspective between the person who is in Christ and outside of Christ. If you are outside of Christ and you die, you, and he said it clearly, you face an eternal hell fire of the wrath of God. There is no comfort for you there. If you are in Christ, you have nothing to fear, but you have been translated into glory, into your everlasting home where there's forgiveness of sins. And so, you know, it was just great, you know. And you you should have been there because you guys are really uh, dull right now. (laughs) Right? Because that's right, because beside me it's like, amen, sit down, stand up, right on, brother. The organ was playing, the choir was going. Right? Thank you, thank you, thank you, sister. My dear friends, this is the gospel. Are you giving us permission to? I'm not sure. There's always risk in that, you know, but. It was great. It was great. My dear friends, let's go to, let's just go, we'll go to the next slide, sorry. Who, this is Calvin, whoever's not satisfied with Christ alone strives after something beyond absolute perfection. If Christ, if it's Christ plus something else, then you're insulting Jesus Christ. Let's go to the last couple. Grace alone. 
Drink continually from the fountain of their lives. Look at verse 13. This was the temptation. They were being pressured to move away from overt commitment to Jesus Christ back into a religious system. That's the danger. The danger of these people, the danger historically, is not that you turn away from Christianity to godless worldliness. Most of the world is religious. In, in, a, in the next generation, friends, as much as atheism or agnosticism is growing in America, globally, that's not what's happening. This world is profoundly, I would say naturally, by design of God, religious. It's where you're going to go. And the Bible warns us here, he warns them, do not move towards a kind of religious faith where you feel accepted and tolerated because you jump through the right religious hoops. It's better to be strengthened by grace than by food. Right? Because that was their temptation. If I pull back away from trusting in Jesus overtly and just become back in my, my Jesusless Judaism, I won't get persecuted. My dear friends, there's no grace in religion. There's grace in a person. Jesus Christ. And so it is by grace alone. So let's go to the next slide. Here's John Calvin again. Uh, there is no other method of living piously and justly than that of depending upon God. You can put all the pressure on your kids to be religious, but if they don't have the grace of God, they'll never be right with God. They'll never be able to persevere. They'll never have the courage when they light the flames or when they ridicule them at class. We'll never have a preacher come up from the next generation. We'll never have missionaries going to the, next, to the nations or to our next-door neighbors. If we give them religion, we must give them the un failing grace of God in Jesus Christ. It is by grace you have been saved and it is by grace you live. Only the grace of God enables us to live. And all of these people knew it because they were broken sinners. Uh, Calvin, use the Calvin quote there. Calvin was trained to be a lawyer. He's French. He was in France at the time. And he talks about what happened to him as he came under the influences of some who were moving to Protestantism. In fact, he had to flee. That's how he ended up in Switzerland. He had to flee from France. But when he came to realize that there was no way his life honored the word of God. That's what Bruce said yesterday when he was speaking to his family. He got up and said, go to the law. And look at yourself. And if you go to the law and look at yourself, you'll realize you're a sinner. And if you see you're a sinner, then go to Jesus. I'm a baby. You know, I'm up there weeping. Bruce is preaching. I'm crying. <laughs> I'm praying. Preach it, brother. Preach it. And he, you did circle around and said it again. You were clear. Circled around, right? It was a glorious thing. But that's what happens. What happens when you come to the Word of God and Christ alone and grace alone is you do not come to confidence in any way. But what you come to realize is that unless the Lord treats me in mercy, if I can only come by faith in Christ alone, unless there's grace, I cannot be saved from my own law-breaking. That's what turned Calvin to the Gospel. He became aware and studying and that changed his whole life. 
<laughs> it was funny because he, he goes to Geneva. That's where he ends up eventually in Geneva. He's pastoring in Geneva. And then after a period of time, they boot him out of Geneva. So he has to go to Strasbourg. He's hiding in Strasbourg, hanging out there with one's buddy that was with him in Geneva. And, and, and then, then the church at Geneva calls him and says, you want to come back and pastor? He described, he, he called Gene, Geneva, Switzerland, a cross. I forget what the other word it, phrase that he used it, but it was not um, it was not a vacation spot for him. He was not going back to Geneva until he realized that if God had called him to be there, then God would give him the grace, and he went back. It's kind of funny actually because historically he goes back. I think he was gone for three years, and he had been preaching. That's one of the beauties of Calvin. If you ever read Calvin. Uh, my favorite thing are his commentaries because he would preach expositionally. That was one of the things he did. He'd take the word of God. Here we are. So he's been gone. He was kicked out of Geneva for, I think it was three years. And he comes back. He co- comes into the church, picks up his Bible like I do on a Sunday morning. He said, in the last Sunday I was here, we were in verse, bang. And he, and they, and he, starts, he picks up where he left off three years ago. <laughs> you kicked me out. Here we are. Let's pick up where we left. Now that's believing in the word of God. That's what he did. That's why I like him. If you read Calvin's commentaries, they're really helpful. Most of the time, they're really very, just like Matthew Henry's commentaries and so on. If you walk your way through, just really good biblical exposition. Let me give you the Luther quote. The sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent that we can't trust the love and grace of Christ and must take matters into our own hands. Be very careful that you don't start trusting in your own church, churchianity, religiosity, you have to trust in Christ all the way. But his grace is sufficient for us because his power is made perfect in weakness. Let's go to the last one. To the glory of God alone. You read that last section. We'll talk about it more next week. But let's go down to verse 13. He talks about the sacrifice being taken out to the outside of the camp by the priests when they finished with the sacrifice and the blood was taken for the sacrifice, the body would be burned outside. Jesus, what did he do? He goes outside, the reproach and shame of the sacrifice, and we are called to do that. Verse 13, therefore let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good, sharing what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. In other words, God, after all he's done for us, and all he is for us, and all he ever will be for us, is worthy. Isn't he? He's worthy for us to be unashamed. He's worthy of us to speak openly about the gospel, to speak truly of Christ. He is deserving. Do it for him. He deserves it. This was the whole driving force. It wasn't to win political power. It wasn't to get possessions of land. It wasn't prestige and influence. It was one simple thing. He is worthy. Soli Deo Gloria. Listen to, uh, listen to Calvin, or, or Luther. I'll give you one last Luther quote here at the end, Doug. When a Christian comes to know, sorry, back when, that, that's a long one, that's all. When a Christian comes to know Christ as his Lord and Savior, who has redeemed him from death and is brought into his dominion and heritage, and, and is brought into Jesus' dominion and heritage, his heart is thoroughly permeated by God. And then he would like to help everyone attain this blessedness. Get what he's saying here? When God saves you, what do you want for other people? You want the same for them. 
For he has no greater joy than the treasured knowledge of Christ. So he begins to teach and exhort others, confesses and commends his blessedness before everybody, and sighs and prays that they too may come to this grace. He has a restless spirit while enjoying rest supreme, that is, God's grace and peace. So he's resting in Christ, but he's restless till everyone rests in Christ. Do you have that? Therefore, he cannot be quiet or idle, but is forever struggling and striving, striving with all his powers as one living only to spread God's honor and praise farther among mankind to cause others also to receive this spirit of grace and through it also to help him pray. That's Luther. Luther, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you suffering what you're suffering? Why are you working through this? Because he said, God has been so gracious to me. Save me. He sustains me. He's worked in my life no matter what men have done to me. And he means so much to me. All I want is everyone to know him, to love him, to adore him. It's about him. He is worthy. Jesus is worthy. Soli Deo Gloria. Aren't you amazed? Now, do you believe that was in the text? I don't, I don't think I was reading it in. So this day before all time, God ordained that you would hear the gospel. That you would remember that it is sola scriptura, the word alone, sola fide by faith alone, solus Christus by Christ alone, sola gracia by grace alone, sola deo gloria. It's nothing has changed for the glory of God alone. Let's pray together. So, dear God, we fear not what men may do, and we fear not what may come in U.S. politics and global politics. We do not weigh, most of all, what men will say, the shame and the ridicule that will come upon those who believe the Bible and live by its truth and speak it in a, in a culture that ridicules and brings reproach upon us. Jesus took reproach for us. Oh, God, let us be willing to take reproach for him. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ is on the throne, that he is sufficient for sinners, that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so I pray, dear God, if there's one person today who has not put their trust in Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of salvation. I pray today we would put our trust in Christ, not in religion, not in religious leaders, not in my efforts, not in anything I've done, but in the finished work of Christ who has triumphed over sin and death. Oh, come to Jesus today. Trust in Jesus today. Spirit of God, give us boldness. Give us love. Give us a delight in Jesus, we pray, that cannot help but be shared. We ask in his wonderful, wonderful name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to find out more about Waterbrook Christian Church located in Victoria, Minnesota, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed day.